This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, September 11th, 2016 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Praise God. If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 24, and I'm going to start reading pretty quickly here. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because as you turn the page and then maybe the next page, you'll see it's very long. Uh, but there's a reason for that, and I'll explain. So I'm going to read it in a couple different chunks, beginning in verse 1, though, of Genesis chapter 24. And there goes my special red pen that I used to love as an English teacher. All right. Genesis 24, verse 1 says this, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, See to that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love for my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar in the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there a room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. 
I'm going to read a little bit further. I think it won't be on the screen. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. Soon as he saw the ring and bracelets on his sister's arms, he heard the words of Rebekah's sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for my camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. The food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. And so he retells the whole story again. Fast forward to verse 50. Then Laban, you're welcome. Then Laban and Bethuel answered after he's retold the story. This thing, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her, go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And when Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments, gave them to Rebekah, and he also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank. They spent the night there, and they arose in the morning. He said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, well, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to him, don't delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. They called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. This is God's word. And I will fill in the blanks as we go. Now Genesis 24 is a pretty unique passage. It's the largest chapter, 67 verses in the book of Genesis. It's actually the longest section of Genesis dedicated to one narrative, one event in all of Genesis apart from the flood, which covers uh, just a few more verses, but three chapters. And it's easy for us to read and kind of go through and go, this is unimportant, but as I've said before, God placed it there, and He placed it there in duplicitous or multiple times, so it's important for us to see and to read. This part of the story doesn't record any great conflicts, no great miracles, no great prophecies. And although there are many words spoken to and about God, there are absolutely no words spoken by God. And even though God says nothing in this text, as we read, we cannot help but see God's hidden hand sovereignly working through what amount to very normal circumstances through His faithful servants. And I think it's noteworthy that it's recorded twice. I didn't read it, but basically the servant repeats exactly what had happened. Here's what happened. I came to the camels, all this thing, same thing. I think emphasizing that idea that this is all about God, His providence, His sovereignty, enough so that we should focus on it again. Sarah has died. Abraham is old. And he's coming to the end of his life. And God has made Abraham great. He is wealthy. But He's also made him greater promises about future offspring and land. And as he gets older, Abraham knows that the total fulfillment of these prophecies and promises are not going to occur in his lifetime. And so now Abraham begins to think about continuation of God's mission into the next generation. His one and only son Isaac doesn't have a bride, which a bride is kind of an important part in creating more offspring for Isaac. It's a big hole there. So Abraham calls his oldest servant, More than likely, Eleazar of Damascus, the very man whom he went before God and said, look, I don't have a son. All I've got 
guy who's been my faithful servant, Eliezer, who controls everything, is probably the same guy. He's been with him for a very long time, watched Abraham's faith mature and grow. He's managed his household for many years, and now he says, I've got a special mission for you. And this chapter, some would easily be tempted to call like the love story of Isaac and Rebekah, because that's really kind of what it's about. It's a story of how their marriage came to be. But both Isaac and Rebekah, as you read, are relatively supporting characters in a story that's really focused on the faith of this servant, whomever he is. Commissioned by Abraham from what sounds like a pretty impossible task. We know how the story ends, so it doesn't feel like that when we read it, but when you consider what he's being asked, it's pretty impossible. But we have this picture of a servant faithfully depending on God and acting as if God's going to come through. Expecting God to come through. Now, in the life of of believers, may I speak for myself, there feels like there's a real tension between acting and then waiting for God to act. When do I act and when do I just wait for God to do something? And some of us struggle, I think, waiting for God. We're not good at waiting. We're not patient. We find ourselves hastily acting on our own power and our own wisdom. And because sometimes we succeed in all earthly meanings of that word, we become very self-dependent. We begin to maximize our responsibility and minimize God's to a fault. But then, others struggle with waiting too long. Well, Holy Spirit hasn't told me to do that yet. They wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait for some miracle, for some sign. Find ourselves just passively waiting for God to to do something that's so obvious. For a hand to write on the wall, for a star to shoot across the sky. I know you've prayed that at times, right? Lord, if you want me to do this, make that tree Wave in the wind. I know you have. That's where we minimize our responsibility and we maximize God's to a fault. Abraham made both mistakes throughout his life. And that's why I think he's a really good example, and perhaps his servant, a better example of what we ought to do. Abraham is not responsible to fulfill God's promises. He's not responsible to make sure that there's more offspring created. i got to get the land because God may not come through, so let me help him out. As he relies on his own power and his own wisdom, he's made that mistake. But he is responsible to ensure that the next generation continues living in the promises of a faithful God. That's why Abraham commissions his servant to find a bride for his son. He doesn't just want any cute Canaanite from the neighborhood. That would be easy. And you think about why he would do that, right? He makes the servant swear, and it's a little odd, I know, for his like hand on the thigh, right? That's a very Middle Eastern thing. We don't do that anymore, but it's, you know, cut your hand, spit, whatever, right? It's like, I want you to swear that you are going to find a wife outside of Canaan, back in my homeland. 
If you had allowed his servant to find a bride locally, you know that would have certainly secured him was more land. Would have guaranteed him to have more land. He could have helped God fulfill the promises. Marry a bride here. We have a little dowry going on. All right, let's do this. And we'll have agreements and relationships and I'll have more land and increase the size of my presence here in Canaan. So in many ways, he is choosing what is the more difficult path by sending his servant in faith that God is going to provide not just a bride, but fulfillment of his promises in his way and his timing. Now, practically speaking, the servant's like, this is a really bad idea. And he asks questions to go, okay, have you thought this through? Like, first, what if I can't even find a suitable woman? Like, I'm going back to Mesopotamia. That's not like some little village. That's a big area. What if I can't find this woman? What if I can't find your family? It's been at least one, if not two generations since Abraham's left. Secondly, what if she won't come back? I mean, I'm going to go to this, this place where she's used to, her homeland. She knows her family. Say, hey, would you come back with me and, and um, marry a guy you've never met in a land you've never seen? It would be great. What if she doesn't want to come back? Fair question. And we can wonder, perhaps thirdly, what if Isaac doesn't want to marry her? Right? What if that's not his ideal? Walks up like, oh, who are you? Right? Give me your wife. What? 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 Who made that? Th- right? So you think there's a lot of like uh, weaknesses to this plan in, a, in an earthly way of thinking. Servant wonders if like maybe if I just maybe she won't come back. How about I take him back there? He can pick who he wants. Right? He can introduce themselves, they can get to know each other, and then he can fall in love. And then we, it's like, no, do not take my son back there. If you can't find one, the oath is done, don't worry about it. God is going to be faithful, he says. And God will go before you, and he will lead the way and prepare the way. This is probably comforting to Israelites who right now, as they read this perhaps for the first time, are being led around the wilderness by an angel in the form of a pillar of fire cloud. God is going ahead of you. So, Eliezer swears, commits himself to Abraham's mission. And even though being in charge of all of the wealth in the household of Abraham, he has tons of responsibilities, this one mission becomes his single most important task. As such, you, you see, he doesn't delegate responsibility. He doesn't bring in a commission of servants of which he has many. He goes himself. He takes the 400-mile journey himself to make sure that the mission is accomplished. A passage is going to reveal that, that this guy, this, this servant is a man of faith. Perhaps he's become one by living with Abraham all those years. In faith, he seeks to fulfill an impossible mission that is, if nothing else, very inconvenient, very uncomfortable, and relatively unreasonable. He seeks to fulfill this mission in such a way that it becomes more important than his personal fulfillment. 
This is not about what he wants. This is not about his preferences. This is not about what is easiest or most convenient or, or comfortable for him. Dare I say, perhaps, possibly, he actually comes to a place where he expects to find personal fulfillment in those places. See, we're always reluctant to, to follow God on a mission that's inconvenient or uncomfortable or even unreasonable because of what it does to us personally. You know, this is going to be, I'm not going to be fulfilled personally. You know how much this is going to cost me? Perhaps, possibly, maybe, as an act of faith, this servant begins to wonder, begins to hope, begins to trust that his personal fulfillment is actually going to come through that kind of suffering. And so he travels 400 miles to look for a woman he has never met to bring her back to marry a guy she has never seen. He arrives at a city named after Abraham's brother. He rests the camels outside the city near a well at evening. This is very strategic. He's not just, you know, walking into this, I'm just going to let go and let God see what he does. He is being very strategic. This is where young women at this time of the evening would begin to come out and draw water for the families, for the household. And as he waits, he prays. And here's what he prays. First thing he does is get there. Rest his camel and he prays. He says, oh Lord. I love that he has O on the front. There's just emotion in that. There's authenticity in that. There's true like, Lord, help me. Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, grant me success today. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw. Here's the plan, Lord. Could you do this? When the young women come out and ask for a drink, would you have the one who it is say, no problem, I'll give you a drink. And, but more than that, would you have her go a next step and say, I'll, I'll feed your camels too. It's a very faithful prayer. It's a prayer that we may be apt not to pray because it's kind of specific. But we learn a couple things, I think, through the faith of the servant. First and foremost, he prays. He prays. I don't know about you, but I am um, a real practical person, a real planning person, strategic person. I would have come in and said, here's the way it's going to work out. Here's my plan, schematic, and it'll work. And Oh yeah, I better pray that God will bless that. Right? I am apt to lean on myself more. I'm apt to depend on my own power, my own wisdom to figure things out. I am not apt to naturally pray first. And that's what he does. He has a deep desire for God's help. And he does... I think importantly, position himself into a place where God is going to have to provide, right? He puts himself in a place of kind of uncertainty. He doesn't just, he could have easily gone into the city and gone, okay, guys, I'm here on behalf of Abraham. You guys have probably heard the story. He was a guy that left about 60 years, brother of Nahor, the name of the city. So I'm looking for his family. He doesn't do that. He goes to the well and he puts him. Self in a place of uncertainty, but it's also a place of opportunity. Those things don't often go together. He wants to find, 
not just a woman, but the right woman, and he prays for success. And he doesn't pray in the name of romantic love. Isn't that interesting? Would you find the perfect bride for Isaac? Woman that will love him and cherish him? He doesn't pray that. He prays that, that God will be faithful to the covenant love that he has demonstrated to Abraham. That he will find a bride that's aligned with what God wants, not what he or Isaac wants. He prays that God will bless, bless his efforts in God's work, right? How often are we going to God like, would you bless my work? Would you bless my plan? Would you? He's like, no, Lord, bless the work that I'm trying to do for you. Fulfill your promises. Bring me success that way. So he prays, but he doesn't just pray, he plans, right? He asks for a, a sign. He asks for something specific. He asks that the right woman will be willing to share her water. And as I said, he also asked that she would offer to water his ten camels. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about camels. A thirsty camel can drink 25 gallons of water. Big deal. All right. Ten camels, 250 gallons at max. I imagine they're thirsty after 400 miles. Her one-gallon pitcher that she's going to feed these camels. You know how many times he knows the first time she draws, she goes down to draw water and comes up. So a woman willing to water ten camels is like 80 to 100 trips. It's not just like, hey, water my camel, thanks. Hey, by the way, it is a huge commitment. Rebecca is one amazing woman. He is not asking for a sign so that God can do, yes, something miraculous, but it's a very specific kind of sign. He, he, he's looking for a very particular kind of woman. He doesn't say, Lord, the most attractive he didn't say the strongest, but he is looking for a woman who is incredibly helpful and gracious and loving and sacrificial. It's amazing the kind of signs that we may ask God for, how um, they're very worldly perhaps. He plans. He's not looking to force an opportunity, which he usually could, but he is hoping and trusting God will make it happen in this way. But he also acts. And I think this is the most important piece. We often put prayer and action kind of against each other. And one commentator, I think, said it well. He said, prayer is never a substitute for action. He prays and he plans, and then he acts in confidence that God is going to provide. Some of us are really good at prayer. Really good at waiting on the Lord to a fault. We pray almost to paralysis. Right? And then there are those of us who don't pray. And we're really good at We get things done. And then after we get things done, the Lord's like, hey, that was really great. Um, this is what I wanted you to do over here, though. So if you would have asked me to begin with, it would have been probably easier. Or one or the other, typically. But they're to go together. When he, he has prayed, he has planned, and then he, he sees this possible candidate, right? He runs to her. 
He runs to meet her, it says. He asks for a drink. She offers. And it's all coming to fruition, right? Just as God, he had asked God. And it's amazing. I love verse 21. It said the man gazed at her in silence as she's going for 80 times, right? Back to the water the camels. He gazed at her to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Oh, is this the one, Lord? I mean, I prayed. Like, wow. Prayer really works. Whoa, okay. It's coming through. Just watching her. After she finishes watering the camels, he asks about her family and finds that she's the great niece of Abraham. And he's blown away. And he can't restrain himself. What does he do? It says he bowed his head in verse 26 and worshiped the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Not, oh, my plan was awesome. I knew it! Man, I'm so good at picking them out, right? Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. If you get nothing, I hope you'll remember this. God's mission is never fulfilled in our prayerless activity, nor is it fulfilled in our prayerful passivity. You can be all kinds of action, do all kinds of things, make all kinds of plans, and never pray and fall flat on your face. Or you can pray it up and sit and wait too long. God fulfills His mission through prayer-filled action. Prayer-filled action. The Lord led Abraham's servant as he prayed and as he acted in faith. Now, feeling blessed, Abraham's servant arrives. He's taken to Rebekah's house. She says, yes, come to my house. Feed your camels. We'll put you up for the night. And as I said, he proceeds to explain the whole story again to her brother Laban and her father Bethuel. And after he goes through the whole story, he's like, you're not going to believe this. And he tells everything that happened, where he was sent, why he was sent, the promises made to Abraham, the mission that he went on, his plan, all that things. And he's, he's just retelling everything the Lord did. Man, the Lord promised this. And so I came and I prayed this and the Lord provided this. He's just talking about the Lord. And their only response, they say, the only response is, this thing's come from the Lord. That, that story is too crazy. I don't even know what to say. For all this to work in this way, that is of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you, where you sit with people and you talk about either the way they came to the Lord or, or something that the Lord did and you're just blown away by like, that doesn't make any sense but for the Lord. It is so encouraging. It is so inspiring. It is a huge reminder, especially in those moments where our spiritual life just bleh, to remember that God is still at work in different ways in different places through some of the most normal circumstances at times. In response, after they say, behold, Rebecca, take her. Who are we to go get? Take her. Go. Let her be the wife of your master's son. 
As the Lord has spoken, they say. And again, Abraham's servant worships, bowing himself down to the earth. An impossible mission has been made possible by God. And he brings out money and jewelry and all these things that would be like a dowry to the family. And after a night of feasting, he arrives in the morning ready to take Rebecca home. Hey, let's do it. Let's go. Let me go back to my master. And they're like, well, let's wait like 10 days at least. But God's servant persists. says, no, 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 don't, don't delay me. Don't delay me. And they say, well, let's ask Rebecca. We'll see whatever she wants to do. Believing that, no way. She's not going to want to go that quickly. At least wait a little bit. So they ask her. And I don't know how they ask her, but I kind of feel like they may have front-loaded it where they make it sound really bad. You know, Rebecca, do you want to leave the family? The only family you know, the comfort of this house. We're living in a city named after, like, you know, whatever, your grandfather. So we got a lot of reputation here. And go to a land you've never seen and marry a guy you've never met. Rebecca. And what does she say? Yeah, I'll go. You know what it echoes so clearly is that she's asked to believe with the same kind of faith that first called Abraham out of that same area. Where Abraham was told, leave your family. Leave what's comfortable. Leave what's easy. And go to a land you've never seen based on promises God has made. In faith, she's willing to leave her family. In faith, she's willing to travel 400 miles, a difficult journey to an unfamiliar and unknown place. In faith, she is ready to devote her life to a groom she has never met face to face. Without question, she is probably familiar with the story of her great uncle Abraham and the promises of God. And this is why, interestingly enough, when she does agree to go, the blessing they give her, they all know the promises of God too. It says, as they bless her, and this is in verse 60, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. May you have lots of babies. But the offspring they're really talking about is the fulfillment of the promises of God. Rebecca is not returning to Canaan based on the promises of Eliezer. Isaac's awesome. Good looking guy. He's got a great job. No. She is returning based on the promises of God. And weeks later, still mourning over the loss of his mother, the end of the text that I didn't read, Isaac would see a caravan coming on the horizon as he's out in the field thinking about his mom mourning. And he goes to meet her and finds that it's his bride and places her into his mother's tent who has recently passed away and later becomes his wife. And you see a very clear transition from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah. And Eliezer, like a faithful groomsman, found and delivered a bride to the groom, and the groom would love his bride. 
Now we read that story and hear that story and you go, what the snarf does that have to do with me? Great question. Genesis 24 is an old story. And it's an old story of a faithful father sending a faithful servant to find a faithful bride to bring back to a chosen groom. Think about that story for a second. It's a faithful father sending a faithful servant to find a faithful bride to bring back and introduce to a chosen groom. This is not just a story from the past. It's a story that lives in the present and looks forward to the future. It is God's story, a story for those who find their rescue and their refuge in Jesus Christ. It's a story about a father who has a very special mission. A father who calls servants to seek out brides or a bride for his son. See, like Abraham, we have a father. God the Father initiated a plan well before the world was ever created, and He purposed that plan to reveal the riches of His glorious grace. I love how Paul, speaking to to non-believing Greeks in Acts 17, tells them this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. God has a mission. It is to be sought, to be found, to be in relationship with the creation that that He created and He planned for. And God intended for all men to seek and find Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Did you know the Scripture declares God's Son to be the one and only groom who would love His bride, the church, the people of God? And in submission to this plan of God, Jesus the bridegroom, right, took on human flesh and lived as a man for 30 plus years. And the last three years of his life, he called his first disciples to himself, and after his death and resurrection, he gave them a mission to continue the work that he began. Filled with his Spirit, he commissioned them and sent them into the world to proclaim the Gospel, namely this, to tell the world that there's a God who loves them and desires to have relationship with them. We're those servants! This is our generation, right? There's been a generation before us, and a generation before them, and a generation before them who have all faithfully served as groomsmen, introducing more and more people to the groom. And we have been given in our time 40 years, a generation of time, to do the exact same thing. If you know the love of Christ, then a love for Christ compels us into the world to find more brides, if you will, for the Son. We have a responsibility to a greater mission that's greater than our responsibilities. A mission that makes all other responsibilities in our lives secondary. We don't all believe that, but it's true. 
If I would ask you what your primary responsibilities in your life are, just as if Eliezer was asked, right? If Eliezer was asked before the father commissioned him, well, I've got to take care of the household, I've got to make sure everyone's fed, everyone's clothed, finances are in order, all these things, right? But when he was commissioned by Abraham, his primary mission was to find a bride for Isaac. And when you became a Christian, for those who are Christians here, you were given one primary mission that governs all other missions. Your mission as a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a worker is secondary to your primary mission to go and introduce others to Christ. In fact, that mission bleeds itself out into the missions you have as a husband, a wife, father to do the same thing. We are the ones who serve God when it is inconvenient and when it is uncomfortable and when it is even unreasonable. Trusting that He has gone before us. Trusting that He's prepared the way. How many times in an effort to tell others about Jesus or share, are we like, well, these words are going to not really make sense. We don't plan for it. We don't expect it. We take all of the, of the dependence and the, uh, for the opportunity or the success thereof of it on ourselves. We are the ones who are to go. We are the ones who are to pray for God's directions. We are the ones who are to plan for God's provision. We are the ones who run toward God's opportunities. We are the ones who praise God and the blessings that He brings as a result. And we are the ones who are to ensure that the mission of God continues to the next generation. Jesus has already prepared the harvest, He says. He's just looking for workers. It's like Pray for workers to what? Create the harvest? No, to harvest what's already created. By grace, as we pray, and as we strategize, and as we go, more and more men and women will do exactly what Rebecca did. They will leave an old life and they'll begin a new relationship with Jesus. Like Rebecca who came to Isaac believing God's promises but not ever seen Him. It's like First Peter says, though we have not seen Jesus, we love Him. And though we don't now see Him, we believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We rejoice as we go and we see more and more people coming to faith and we tell the stories over and over again about what God has done, about what God is doing. Let me tell you this crazy situation where God showed up in the most miraculous way and the only thing I did was willingly take a step. The overarching purpose of our lives must be be the glory of God. And God is most glorified when we are seeking out others to introduce to Jesus. And I know many of us go, but I'm not going to go 400 miles. How about 400 feet? Is that easier? God doesn't call everyone to go 400 miles to meet the groom. It's 400 feet to introduce them. 400 feet. We are to be faithful groomsmen working for the groom. And just as the story of Genesis 24 ends with marriage and the comfort from the pain, perhaps of loneliness or just loss, so our story, if you didn't know, ends with a marriage and a wedding feast. And I'll close 
out of Revelation, which I've probably read many times, but it's to remind us of the meaning of Genesis 24, but really the meaning of our whole lives. Genesis 20, I'm sorry, Revelation 21, the first four verses says this, Then I saw, as John writes out his vision, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. My greatest prayer is to give anyone that hears me preaching perspective. To remember that this is not all there is. That we have actually a mission here and you're not guaranteed another minute of life. And none of us, I hope, will ever have to shrink in shame at the coming of our Lord Jesus because we poured ourselves out to simply introduce others to the groom. To, to tell others about what Jesus has done for us, that He has died for us, that He has raised for us to give us new life. Perspective. Because it's so easy as you go about this crazy world with political weird stuff and social weird stuff and economic weird stuff to get distracted about what is most important. And what is most important, what is primary above all things, is that you are a faithful groomsman. For you ladies, that might be difficult to think about, but it's just as hard for us to think of ourselves as the bride, so deal with it, right? We are faithful mailmen delivering news to those who don't know and have not heard so they can experience the same love we have. This is all going to burn up one day, and I trust when we stand before the Lord, we will all hear, well done, good and faithful. I didn't ask you to go 400 miles, I just said go 400 feet, and you did. Let's pray.